for a team to be functional, never mind for it to succeed and achieve all of its objectives and stuff. It needs to have trust and inclusion right at its core. And, and to do that, it, I mean, that's a hard thing to get, um, but you need that as the building block for any successful team. And any team, like you say, that's going to be able to constructively handle conflict, which is, of course, inevitable. Hi, and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Tara Humphrey. I run an award-winning healthcare consultancy specialising in supporting primary care networks. I'm a facilitator. I am a mum of three. I have an MBA and I would class myself as a bit of an adventurer. And I absolutely love all things business, all things leadership, all things management. So I created this podcast for clinical and non-clinical colleagues working in the field of health and care and for those of you looking to develop your leadership skills. Every week we release an episode which focuses on the hard and soft skills required to lead in this increasingly complex environment as we move to delivering more integrated care. So let's jump into this week's episode. Hey Claire, thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? You're welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm very good. Thank you. So would you share with our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do? Of course. So, um, well, my name's Claire Sieber and I'm first and foremost a GP. I work down in West Sussex. Uh, I work on a sort of freelance basis, but I also um, work as a mediator. I mediate disputes, so disagreements that uh, GPs get into, whether that be as part of their PCN or in their partnership or disputes that happen within the practice between employees. And I've done that for about 18 months now. So that's me in a nutshell. And what led you to go into the dispute side of practice? Yeah. So I've been working for local medical committees for about five years or so. And as you know, local medical committees provide practices with a lot of support and advice that a lot of that is around disagreements that practices have, have ended up sadly in and so I kind of got into it through through that and realized that I really enjoyed that aspect of the LMC job and I wanted to do it in a bit more bit more of an intensive way than you can do as an LMC person so I uh, went off and did a law degree and got some sort of basic understanding of the law and how it works that's relevant to general practice and then I went off and became accredited as a mediator uh, and then I just kind of took it from there so I really was just sort of following my interests and my passions and everything just kind of landed how it did I never set out at the beginning to be a mediator or anything like that. So I love how you just say I just went off and got a law degree. <laughs> you can do these things online now from the you know, the comfort of your own home from your bedroom and I I needed something to do for a few years to sort of distract me and keep me going so I thought I'd put my energy into that rather than eating crisps and watching <laughs> and I don't know if this is a hard question but what are there common themes around what you are pulled in to support yes definitely absolutely I'd say with with partnerships, the 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 general theme is a, a sort of personality clash, and uh, a situation whereby there is one GP that the rest of the partners would quite like to leave. 
<laughs> it's similar almost in a way with with PCNs. The the, the trends there are that the the PCNs that I get involved in are PCNs where the practices historically haven't worked together very much at all because they haven't got on or they've found that they've delivered services a different way or perhaps they were actually one practice that then split and so they're not used to working together in the PCN they're sort of forced practices or well incentivized practices to start working together and then that always creates a little bit of conflict so those are the real kind of high level key themes that I see time and time again and what is your role what does a mediator do yeah I think it's it's misunderstood what what mediation is. So a mediator is a completely independent person who will never have met the people involved or had any associations whatsoever with the practice or PCM. And they're there to simply help the people who are in the disagreement to find their own way out of the disagreement. And people often think that mediation is all about making a relationship better almost like remediation, but actually mediation is used just as frequently to sort of negotiate how you're going to end things as well. But whatever gets agreed, it's all what the people in in the dispute, in the disagreement have agreed. And I'm simply there to help people get to that point. And there's a lot of co- coaching and coaxing as well to get them there. And I will often be suggesting creative ideas perhaps of how they might resolve issues based on my experience of working in an LMC and you know for LMCs but it will ultimately be their idea that they've come to so it can be totally creative and unique and much more flexible than if you were to pay solicitors to try and sort it out or even go to a court where they'd only really be looking at money or some sort of contract that you've got to adhere to with mediation you can kind of do whatever you want and is it important that you are a GP? Yes, I think so. There's something about GPs, us GPs. We like we like our own. <laughs> so that just gives me a sort of free shoe-in, you know, just because I'm a GP. But it's helpful that though that I understand the language that people are talking about and the situations that people find themselves in. You, the last thing you want to be doing when you're in some sort of bitter dispute is have to explain kind of basic ways of working and concepts to a mediator so that they can actually help you and because I'm a locum as well I think it also helps because I've seen so many different ways that practices can work and PCNs can work so I can can often help with the creative solutions where somebody who had no industry expertise probably wouldn't really be able to suggest many solutions they'd just be helping you to work with what you've already got. First, it's probably worth saying, even though we work in primary care, the Business of Healthcare podcast is broader than just primary care. So could you just briefly describe what the LMC is? Because there will be the equivalent of the LMC, you know, like in I don't, in community or in secondary care or in the volunteer, there'll be an organisation that you can go to, I hope, or if your organisation is big enough, there'll be a department you can go to for support. So what is the LMC? Yeah, great question. Well, the LMCs are unique. They're called the local medical committees and they're statutory bodies. So they're defined in the NHS Act and their role is set out there. 
but most LMCs would say that they are there to firstly represent GPs. So they're a sort of democratic, accountable, representative body, but they also will provide advice and support to GPs. And each practice has to pay their local medical committee a levy, a fee, to to receive their services and that's in the practices NHS contract that it has with the NHS so they can't get out paying that but all LMCs and there's many of them across the country all operate a bit differently in terms of what support they actually provide to their practices and their GPs but generally advice and support uh, perhaps even a little bit of mediation is something that they'll be able to do so if for your listeners that aren't GPs or practices, it's kind of a bit like a, a trade association in a way. It's not quite the trade union because that's the BMA, but it's sort of similar to that. Okay. And at what point does the LMC, I would imagine from my experience, by the time they're calling you in, the relationship is, you know, like it's it's crap, you know, <laughs> like which is probably a little bit too late. At what point do you come in typically and what point should you come in? Yes. So typically, you're absolutely right. I come in late at the end of the day when people are very uh, entrenched in their positions and their argument and they've spent a lot of money, perhaps even with lawyers, and they've spent a lot of time and emotional energy in their disagreements. But mediation works just as well really early on as it can do really late in the day. You don't need to, contrary to what some people think, have to have gone so far down a process and involved lawyers and stuff before you say, okay, right now we'll mediate. That's That's a complete myth and it's never too early. And my advice would always be, if you've been unable to avoid a conflict, then your best way of resolving it is getting in there early because it's just far easier to resolve when there's there's less water under the bridge and less pain and suffering and money that's gone down floating away with it. What if you are on one side and you think we need mediation, but the relationship is still, you know, like it's like, yep, nope, you're still working together tensely. But your other party's thinking, it's not that bad. You know, like, calm down, we don't need a mediator. How do you, I suppose this is where the, the LMC broker your involvement don't they often they do yes and mediation is entirely voluntary so everybody who's in the disagreement has to expressly consent to the mediation so it can't be forced upon anyone but when you sort of explain the principles of mediation it does bring a lot of those reluctant people all those people that perhaps don't think there's much of a problem to the table once you explain that it's completely confidential that it's what we call without prejudice, which means that you basically can't make your situation any worse legally, because whatever you've said on that day as part of the mediation is basically forgotten about. So you can't, your your colleague couldn't go to a tribunal the next day and say, oh, well, they, they said such and such in the mediation, so I'm going to sue them. So it's a completely safe space. And there's no obligation when you're there to reach any sort of agreement. Um, Obviously, it's hoped that that happens. But if you just don't feel like you're getting anywhere on the day, you can just get up and walk away at any point with complete impunity. So really, when, when people see it like that, the only disadvantages of a mediation are that it'll take a bit of time, probably a day, half a day, depending on the issues. 
and it will cost a bit of money. But if you're employees, then that's something that your employer should bear the cost of. It's relatively small amount of money for practices and PCNs and other providers. And sometimes commissioners are quite happy to reimburse the cost of a mediation because they see how important it is for their providers to be functioning and providing good services. And that's all about them not having a dispute. It's probably outside of the scope of your role, but say you have facilitated and mediated a decision where the partnership is going to break up and there is the decision, but then there is the emotional side of that decision. And I think everybody can relate to that. An argument, a disagreement has taken place. There is a resolution, but you feel absolutely crap or you don't want to meet that person, you know, like you've still got to see them. How do you, does that, what is your advice there? How do you move on when you feel like you've really been shafted? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's a common occurrence, that Mm. kind of thing that I'm mediating there, the complete separation, the, you know, the ending of a relationship. And sometimes it's negotiated in the mediation so that the person that's leaving literally does not have to see the, the the rest of the team again and they can arrange exactly when to go in and collect all of their bits and bobs uh, and they might be given a bit of gardening leave or something like that so they're not left high and dry financially but you can you can choose to to cut it off immediately if you think that you can't do that likewise you could also negotiate in the mediation some way of working together that makes the best out of the bad situation for the remainder of the time that somebody might have left perhaps changing the hours or the days that you're working or even I don't know the room that you're working in or the the premises that you're working in so you're not with the people who you really have the issue with and in the mediation itself you can of course do it virtually which some people find really helpful so that there's they're not physically in the same room as the people that they're in a conflict with But um, generally, it's only the sort of beginning part of the mediation where the people are together. And then for the rest of the day, it will, they'll be in separate rooms and the mediator is doing a lot of the legwork go between the two, sorting it out. So you shouldn't worry that you're not going to be able to manage the mediation because you can't bear to be in the same room with that person because it will be heavily managed by a mediator. And actually the time that you'll be together it's small and it could even be virtual. Have you got any success stories? Oh yeah, <laughs> plenty. It, the thing about mediation is because it's saving you court costs and having some sort of decision imposed on you by somebody else like a lawyer or a court or an arbitrator, when people are in it, generally they do see that they might as well reach an agreement there and then okay, rather than let it be done to them so uh, most most cases do settle on the day or shortly thereafter we can we can do we can do all sorts of things we unfortunately a lot of the time it is about ending the relationship but then there's so many creative ways that you can do it that keep both all of the parties sort of happy um all sorts of ways that you can arrange uh, payments that are due and yeah pretty much every mediation that I do is a success in that it it settles it might be that some of the people never really wanted to leave for example but they appreciate that that's the outcome that they got in the mediation was the best that they were going to get for them 
So it is a pleasure to be bringing the Business of Healthcare podcast in partnership with DKMS UK. DKMS are a blood cancer charity on a mission to find a blood stem cell match for everyone who needs it. I am proud to share that I am an ambassador for DKMS UK and my particular interest in partnering with them is that as it stands, fewer than 3% of patients from a black or mixed ethnic background are on the stem cell blood registry. We need more people to sign up to the registry and more people to spread the message. So I hope you will join me in doing so. To sign up to the registry, please visit www.dkms.org.uk to get involved. Where you've mentioned the most common theme is around, I suppose, personality clashes and probably, you know, like toggles for control. Is it ever about a contract? Is it ever about the words that were written down on a certain date and then there has been a perceived breach of that contract? Or is it softer, deeper than that? Yeah, so dis- disputes and conflicts are always about the emotions, okay. always. And so one of the roles of a mediator is to really get down there below what you see on the surface and really find out what people are angry about, what they want, what they need, and the same for everyone else involved. And so on the face of it, it face of it, it might be about a contract. It's often about a verbal contract that's never been written down anyway. But there'll be all sorts of bits and bobs underneath that will also be going on. And once you've worked out those, generally what you'll see between the people in the conflict is that actually there is some common ground. Even if it's a tiny thing that everybody doesn't want, there'll be something there that you could then sort of build the solution on. And once you know what people are wanting and how they're feeling, it just opens you you up to the, the number of solutions that become available. But that, that leads me on to one of my other tips about avoiding conflicts in the first place. It's so important when for decision-making to be proper, properly governed, but also properly documented as well, and then properly communicated. Because people really like to argue about what they were arguing about and what might have been agreed or not agreed. And if it's written down and it's documented and it's clear and it's minuted and people have approved the minutes, then you're cutting out a whole load of stuff that is possible to argue about. There's just less there to argue about if it's all nice and clear. So I would really recommend that people do that. And I have seen I've seen it save people's bacon on more than one occasion because they've been able to refer to something and say, well, actually, it says it there. So we'll end that discussion and we'll move on to the other thing that we've that we're in conflict about now. And in when thinking about take taking yourself outside of primary care and just as a, an employee, a leader of an organisation, what tips could we apply to prevent us going deep into that conflict? So there is managing conflict and conflict is good and conflict is necessary and all of that stuff. But there are things, you know, like when you're in it, you think I should have did that. And we just, sometimes it's basic, but what would you advise generally to keep us not having to, to leave when we don't want to? (laughs) Well, for for a team to be functional, never mind for it to succeed and achieve all of its objectives and stuff, 
it needs to have trust and inclusion right at its core. And, and to do that, it, I mean, that's a hard thing to get, um, but you need that as the building block for any successful team and any team, like you say, that's going to be able to constructively handle conflict, which is, of course, inevitable. So there's some really basic things that you can do, like make sure the staff meet the team meets regularly. I work with so many teams that don't meet regularly, either as in the sort of workplace setting for a work team meeting or even socially. And I think both are really important. Firstly, because, well, it's just much harder to be in a disagreement with somebody who you're having to meet every Wednesday for coffee anyway and have a chat with. But also if you if you know the people in your team and you know their values and their passions and you've seen pictures of their grandkids, you're just less likely to get into that horrible, bitter situation with them. And you're more likely to be effective communicators with each other because you have been doing that socially or whatever in your team meetings. And so when an issue does come up, you'll be able to raise it early. It will be treated like no big deal and it will just get sorted rather than it brewing into something that it perhaps doesn't need to be. So that would be a really simple but important tip. And it's one that is lacking so much in the conflicts that I get involved in. So I would agree and what do you, so it's kind of like, how else can we plea to say to people, I know you're really busy. Like it's crazy. So one argument is that they're just, people are just so, so busy. So they're thinking, Tara, I don't have, to, you know, like I've got like 50,000 emails and my phone hasn't stopped ringing and I haven't seen my own husband, let alone want to talk to you about your kids how do we, how can we change people's minds? So when they, if the only thing they do from listening to this podcast is to think, right, we need to meet, how can we change their minds? Oh, it's a hard one, isn't it? But I would argue that just like a doctor would say to you, you're never too busy to do 20 minutes of exercise three days a week. I don't think you're ever too many too busy to take a five minute coffee break at the same time as somebody else and go and sit with them and have that cup of tea. I'm sure you would then make up the five minutes later on in the day by being more productive and effective because you've had a nice break and you've had some nice, you know, warm feelings and some endorphins and all of that sort of stuff going on and you've stretched your legs a bit too. But it's, I, I, it's difficult to actually do that though, isn't it? Yeah. If, you're, if you're a PCN, if you're a PCN, I know someone that's it's 11 practices well even getting the partners of one small practice together for a, a weekly or a fortnightly partnership meeting is is difficult enough a lot of those have sort of fallen by the wayside in the pandemic because people have just said they're too busy which has then had knock-on effects yeah. but it's got it's got to be right at the top of your priority it really has because it's that's how you run an effective business in my opinion yeah in my opinion as well. It's the cost, you know, like if there is conflict brewing, the cost of not addressing or not meeting will cost you so much more <laughs> emotionally, physically, financially than potentially. Sorry, you'll probably pick up earlier on a conflict as well if you're meeting regularly because some, somebody suddenly won't come or they'll be quiet or they'll sit in a different place and you'll detect it and you might not have even detected it that early had you not had that opportunity either. So that's another 
Okay. Another another reason why you should. <laughs> okay. So number one, meet. We need to meet. We need to meet. We need to be well well governed in our decision making, and we need to we need to be brave. And if we see somebody struggling, or see somebody working with the door shut, or pick up on some sort of tension or hear a rumour, somebody needs to be brave and go and ask if everything's okay. You just reminded me of a lady called, I don't want to get her name wrong, I want to say Ursula Montgomery, who is a GP clinical senior advisor to NHS England, said that there are multiple truths. So nobody's ever, you know, like, it's not I'm right and you're wrong. I'm right in my world, you're right in your world. And then there is the truth that's in between, but there are multiple truths. And when she said that to me, I did think that has, it has really helped me. You know, when you think people are being awkward and people can't see my point of view and it's like, of course they can't see my point of view because they're not me. (laughs) Absolutely. And that's okay that they think differently. And I think that has diffused so much frustration because I just think actually, now I can think, I can see why you think that. So just there are multiple truths. It's not always about trying to find out who is wrong or right. Correct. And that's the nub of conflict resolution there. It's not about right and wrong. It's about how people are feeling and then getting them to see that regardless of whether they might feel they're right or they're wrong, how do they see the solution being? And then you helping them as the as the leader to to get there. Any other advice? Well, it sounds like not a lot of advice that I've given so far, but also at the same time, quite a lot of advice, isn't it? It's really simple stuff. A, um, a lot of the disagreements that I get involved in in primary care are because it goes a little bit back to this governance thing. There isn't good enough uh, contracts. So employment contracts, staff handbooks, network agreements, partnership agreements. Sometimes they're not there at all, but at other times they're vague. So really, you need to make sure that you have one and that it's valid so that you know, everybody signed it that needs to sign it, that it contains everything that you're actually doing. So it's reflecting how you work, because it often doesn't. And then it also contains everything that you need it to contain should you should that situation arise. And then you got yourself a really helpful document that might prevent the conflict in the first place, because it'll be really clear about what to do. But if you are in a conflict, then it will also probably help you give you a framework for how to resolve that conflict, too. So there's two reasons why that's a good thing to have. And most of the disputes I get involved in there, there is either not that document or it's pretty useless the way it's been written. I think I remember at the beginning of primary care networks, you know, so many lawyers were drafted in to draft these agreements but a lot of time has passed. A lot of movement has happened. I probably don't know what it even says. You know, like there is a piece of work that needs to be, you know, it's probably yearly to just go in and review it. But it's one of those tasks, you know, like if you're the person trying to get everybody to update it, you're just, you know, like no one wants to talk to you. <laughs> like, you're just a job sweat. If you do, it's really hard to get people to see the value of it. But people do understand that everybody's been through a conflict and not a very nice one. I think everybody can relate to that. So it's probably, it's pulling on people's, it's their logic, but also, you know, their personal side and just making sure that I's are dotted and T's are crossed. It's, I think I meet people that, that 
it's not it's they're sitting on either side of the spectrum you get some networks some people that you know it's not happening you know then they there'll be no movement until there is a hundred percent consensus and then you've got other people that it's like but we trust each other we're getting on we don't need it you need but you need balance I think because there is always a little bit of sometimes there can be a bit of gray yes you do I think you do need balance because you don't want it's very difficult to come to a conflict and then suddenly decide that you're going to rely on your network agreement when the whole year or two years previous to that you've never actually looked at it and you've made decisions that haven't been in accordance with it because then you've you've kind of stuffed yourself you stuffed yourself over there you need to reliably use it and if it's not if it's not reflecting what you're doing because you're making decisions by consensus rather than you know with a proper formal vote then fine but just change it (laughs) so that it then is reflecting what you're doing and then nobody can ever say to you oh well why are you bothering with the network agreement now when we haven't for so long you're just trying to get you what you want out of this particular situation so you almost need somebody at, at you know every PCM board meeting or whatever saying hold on a sec does anything that we've done today need to be reflected somehow in the in our network agreement or uh you know is it all still okay and have we have we actually followed our network agreement in what we've done today just just change it if not it's it's meant to be it's your network agreement it's no one else's should work for you and how do you protect yourself so you're hearing all of my problems and then you come home you've got your own problems how do you safeguard your own well-being well, I'm quite a boundary person anyway, and I suppose I've had lots of experience of doing exactly that as a GP. You know, people love coming to see us and offloading their problems onto us, and sometimes it can feel a bit like we're now bogged down with their problem and they've gone out the door with a weight off their shoulders. But you just get better at doing it with time. But I am, I am very boundaried, and I think because a mediator is independent and not acting for any of the parties in particular it does allow you to not take on so much of of people's baggage and it is ultimately their decision and their agreement if they get one that they come to and if they don't get an agreement that's with them not me although I'll be disappointed and I'll have made sure I've tried my best to get them there but some people just aren't quite ready and that's okay and what keeps you still being a GP? Oh, it's my it's my job. It's my career. I love being a GP. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to be anything else. I love patients. I love people. I love I love normal people, and that's why I always knew I wanted to be a GP rather than a, a hospital consultant in some super specialty thing, looking at you know really cool infectious diseases or something. I wanted to just be be treating ordinary people, and I love how you can see. I don't know, maybe even five people in a row all with a headache, but you'll treat each one of them completely differently because they'll all be individuals with different issues and different things going on. And I just I just love that about general practice. Probably being a locum at the moment really helps because I can control my workload and make it manageable and I can be flexible around my family and my other work commitments. But I will always, always be a GP. That's really, really, really nice to hear. If people want to contact you, so do you only work in your region? Can anybody contact you from outside to work with you? 
Yeah, I limit myself to England. (laughs) I don't know the jurisdiction of this podcast. (laughs) Well, no, it is international. We're in multiple countries. Yeah, it is. But just UK basis. Yeah. Okay. So I limit myself to England just because I only really understand uh, English law and the English GP contract. I wouldn't want to really go outside that because I don't think I'd be delivering a particularly good service to those people. So, so long as they're in England, they're welcome to contact me and I'm happy to travel, although a lot of stuff can be done remotely now anyway. I find particularly with PCN issues, because there are so many people involved, like you said, that 11 practice PCN, even if you've just got one partner from each of those practices coming, that's 11 people. And finding a room where you can have 11 people socially distanced is quite difficult so sometimes that sort of stuff is easy easier remotely and then of course it doesn't matter if I live at the opposite end of England anyway. And do you have a website or do people just email you how do they get in touch with you? I do so I do have a website it's just generalpracticemediation.co.uk I find a lot of people will come to me through their LMCs because most LMCs in England sort of know about me and will signpost people to me the same goes for CCGs. Quite a lot of the primary care teams know about me as well. And so we'll signpost people to that me, but you can come to me directly. And so long as I've never met you before and I've never worked at your practice, then there shouldn't be any reason why um, I can't help you out. And I have plenty of sort of confidential, no obligation chats with people so they can think about whether mediation would be right for them before they commit. It's important that people are fully on board by the time they sort of start the mediation. Okay. And actually, I've got a question for you. How do you market yourself? So you say lots of people know about you. How is it just word of mouth? How do you market yourself? Yeah, I, I, I put quite a lot of effort into marketing myself because I think if I just sat back and done nothing, I'd hardly be getting any mediation work at all. So I, um, well, I, I use a kind of Google sort of advertising services I promote myself quite heavily with the local medical committees and the CCGs. I go and do sort of plenary sessions and talks at conferences and that sort of thing. Um, I also work for a couple of my competitors whose names I won't mention, but they take me on as, as somebody to mediate disagreements in general practice because they don't really have anyone else with my knowledge and expertise and and certainly no one that's a GP themselves. So I, that's kind of how I've got a grip on the marketplace. And this has been over what period of time? 18 months. That's quite quick. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's a niche. It's a, it's a niche niche. Um, so yeah. maybe it makes it easier to, to build up things. But I suppose I have been with LMCs for five or six years. And so there's been a slow maybe a slow build up to it yeah uh-huh. oh well, thank you so much for your time I really appreciate it that's okay you're welcome thank you so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review 
I know many of you give us a shout out on social media, which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast. So please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care, on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn, just look for Tara Humphrey. And if you're not subscribed to our newsletter, please do. It's really, really funny. You get to hear more insights, more confessions, some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week. So click on join the newsletter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode. Thank <laughs> you.